the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Today we'll hear from uh, FR Father um, Dwight Longenecker, the mystery of the Magi, the quest to identify the three wise men. Or were there three? Anyway, we'll talk with him about that in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also talk with Gary Hemingway, who is music director of the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas, which is coming to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall the 12th, 13th, and 14th of this month. Those are Friday, Saturday, and Sunday performances. By the way, you can find out all the important details at kpdq.com. Look for the uh, uh, Gospel Christmas banner on that webpage. He'll be joining us later in the 5 o'clock hour as well. First, some of the uh, the headlines, the Democratic-controlled House Judiciary Committee moved to the forefront of the president's impeachment inquiry today with a hearing featuring, I should say, a series of hearings featuring four legal scholars, but no fact witness in the same um, room that hosted last month's uh, House Intelligence Committee hearings. Lawmakers heard from Stanford law professor Pamela Carlin, Harvard law professor and Bloomberg columnist Noah Feldman. University of North Carolina law professor Michael Gerhardt and George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley. All are Democrat witnesses uh, except for Turley, a point that did not escape the president Tuesday evening as he noted a lack of fairness in the process. I should point out, however, that Turley um, may in fact be a, a Democrat. He voted for Barack Obama. He voted for Hillary Clinton and he has find, uh, funded other Democrats. He is not a uh, Trump supporter. Uh, the president again tweeting there. They get three constitutional lawyers. We get one. He said during a bilateral meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in London. That's not sounding too good. And that's the way it is. We don't get a lawyer. We don't get any witnesses. We want Biden. We want uh, son Hunter. Where's Hunter? Um, we want Schiff. We want interview uh, to interview these people. Well, they said, no, we can't do it. End quote. Well, the next phase in the impeachment inquiry of the president comes as the Democrat led House Intelligence Committee late Tuesday voted to adopt the issue. It's scathing report on the findings from the panel's investigation, accusing the president of misusing his office to seek foreign help in the 2020 presidential race. The 13 to 9 party line vote on the 300 page report was a necessary step before the document could be transferred to the House Judiciary Committee. And the sudden exit of Senator Kamala Harris from the 2020 presidential campaign is causing a panic among some within the Democratic Party over the remaining candidates who are participating in the upcoming debate who are all Caucasian. This is so tiresome to me, I say, as an African-American woman. Despite qualifying for the December debate, Harris announced Tuesday that she was suspending her candidacy. She did so in uh, in her free will amid sinking poll numbers and fundraising. Her departure leaves only six candidates on the debate stage. Former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Senator Amy Klobuchar and billionaire uh, Democrat donor Tom Steyer, the other candidates of color, uh, tech businessman uh, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, Senator Cory Booker, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian 
Castro have yet to meet both requirements set by the DNC to participate in the December debate. They're not forbidden from running. They have the opportunity to appeal to voters like every other would-be candidate look seeking the nomination. So to make this about race rather than a failed campaign is a bit What's the word I want to apply? Dubious. Well, the requirements include having at least 200,000 unique donors and reaching 4% in four DNC-approved polls or 6% of two DNC-approved early state polls. Well, nine more women have come forward today, actually yesterday, in a lawsuit that claims that they were sexually abused by convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, with one accuser saying she was just 13 when the abuse began. The lawsuit filed in New York State Court in Manhattan on Tuesday alleges incidents of uh, sexual abuse between 1985 and 2007. The accusers are listed as Jane Doe 1 through Jane Doe 6, and their claim is against Darren uh, Indyke and Richard Kahn, the executors of Epstein's estate, which is valued at $577 million. Well, the husband of uh, one of the Democrats in the impeachment hearings took $700,000 from firms tied to the Ukrainian oligarch accused of ordering contract killers, uh, killings rather, that's under investigation. And the Georgia governor has appointed um, Kelly Loeffler to the Senate in defiance of President Trump. And the Army says faith-based uh, groups can no longer put Bible verses on dog tags after a singular complaint. And a generational leap. The Navy is uh, paying $22 billion for nine nuclear-powered submarines. The president's administration is um, uh, going to close food stamp eligibility loopholes for able-bodied adults. And hospital groups are suing to block price transparency, a rule that was recently approved. On this day in history, in 1867, the National Grange of the Order of Patrons of Husbandry, also known as the Grange, is founded in Washington, D.C. to promote the interests of farmers. On this day in 1945, the Senate approves U.S. participation in the United Nations by a vote of 65 to 7. And on this day in history, 1965, the United States launches Gemini 7 with Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Frank Borman and Navy Commander James Lovell aboard a two-week mission. While Gemini 7 is in orbit, its sister ship, Gemini 6A, is launched on December 15th on a one-day mission. The two spacecraft are able to rendezvous within a foot of each other. In 1991, the original Pan American World Airways ceases operation. And on this day in 1995, the first NATO troops lands in the Balkans to begin setting up a peace mission that brings American soldiers into the middle of the Bosnian conflict. 1996, on this day, the Mars Pathfinder lifts off from Cape Canaveral and begins speeding toward the Red Planet on a 310 million mile odyssey. It would arrive on Mars July of 1997. And finally, on this day in 2000, in a pair of legal setbacks for Al Gore, a Florida state judge refuses to overturn George W. Bush's certified victory in Florida, and the U.S. Supreme Court sets aside a ruling that had allowed manual recounts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, we'll talk about the mystery of the Magi, the quest to identify the three wise men. Or were there just three. We'll also talk with Gary Hemingway, music director of the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas. That series of concerts coming up the 12th, 13th, and 14th of this month at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. More details uh, coming up. You can also check out more information at kpdq.com. Look for the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas banner. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Democrat-led House Intelligence Committee late Tuesday voted to adopt and issue its scathing report on the findings from the panel's impeachment inquiry, accusing the president of misusing his office to seek foreign help in the 2020 presidential race. The 13-9 party line vote on the 300-page report was a necessary step before the documents could be transferred to the House Judiciary Committee that met early today and throughout the day. It's scheduled uh, to begin taking up that case with its first formal impeachment hearing. However, a senior member of the Democratic House Speaker, Nancy Nancy Pelosi's leadership team says that in the evening that it seems unlikely the House can vote on impeachment before Christmas, saying it's too complex a process. I just don't see it. The source said it's too big. President Trump's scheme subverted U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine and undermined our national security, they went on to say, in favor of two politically motivated investigations that would help his presidential reelection campaign. Well, it asserted the inquiry uncovered a months-long effort by the president to use the power of his office to solicit foreign interference. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham swiftly uh, hit back in a statement slamming the nature of the Intelligence Committee's inquiry and claiming it failed to prove any wrongdoing on the part of the president. At the end of a one-sided sham process, she says, Chairman Schiff and the Democrats utterly failed to produce any evidence of wrongdoing by the president. Uh, This report reflects nothing more than their frustrations. Chairman Schiff's report reads like the ramblings of a basement blogger straining to prove something when there's no evidence. The Intelligence Committee, led by Chairman Schiff, conducted extensive interviews with witnesses connected to the Trump administration's relationship with Ukraine, some public, some not public. The president engaged in this course of conduct, the report says, for the benefit of his own political reelection. Schiff also tweeted the impeachment inquiry uncovered overwhelming and uncontested evidence. Republicans would probably contest that part of his statement. The president, Trump, uh, Trump rather, abused his power of uh, office to solicit foreign interference in our election for his personal political gain. His committee held closed-door sessions before opening up the inquiry to public hearings, which um, featured testimony from witnesses, including National Security Council officials, the ambassador to the EU, and former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. The report concluded that Trump withheld nearly $391 million in military aid from Ukraine, uh, conditioning its um, delivery as well as a White House visit with uh, Zelensky on public announcements that Zelensky was conducting the investigation. No announcement was made. The funds have since been dispersed. The report also alleges that Trump intimidated witnesses through statements he made about Ivanovich, Vindman, the Shah's affairs for U.S. Embassy in Kiev, William Taylor, and Jennifer Williams, special counselor for Europe and Russia in the office of the vice president. The president has denied wrongdoing, says his call with Zelensky was, in quotes, perfect, while maintaining there was no such quid pro quo tying aid to the investigation. One key witness alleged a clear quid pro quo, but also acknowledged he never heard those conditions from the president. Meanwhile, Zelensky has denied that there was any pressure put on him or any talk of quid pro quo between the two leaders. But he did recently criticize the decision to delay the aid as expected. Meanwhile, Speaker Nancy Pelosi posed a simple question to House Democrats in a closed door meeting today as the Judiciary Committee considered articles of impeachment against the president in an initial hearing that erupted in sharp partisan exchanges. The question, are you ready? She asked rank and file lawmakers. The answer was a resounding yes. At least that's what we were told. The Democrats also gave a standing ovation to Chairman Schiff, whose Intelligence Committee report cataloged potential grounds for impeachment, and they overwhelmingly indicated they want to continue to advance the inquiry on its current path. 
The meeting was described by people familiar with it who were unauthorized to discuss it by name and were granted anonymity. Pelosi, once reluctant to engage in a strictly party line impeachment proceeding, is now leading colleagues to a likely vote after a House investigation found that the president seriously misused his power. Uh, elsewhere, the on Capitol Hill, the House Judiciary Committee's first impeachment hearing quickly burst into partisan infighting as Democrats charged the president must be removed from office for a trio of offenses, abuse of power, bribery and obstruction. And Republicans angrily retorted that there were no grounds for such drastic action. The speaker has said no decision has been made on whether there will be a House vote on impeaching the president. But a vote by Christmas appears increasingly unlikely with the release of a 300 page report by the Democrats on the Intelligence Committee that found serious misconduct by the president in quotes. The judiciary panel responsible for drafting the articles of impeachment convened as the president's team was fanning out across Capitol Hill. Vice President Mike Pence met behind closed doors with House Republicans. Senate Republicans were to huddle with the White House counsel as GOP lawmakers stand with the president. Uh, Chairman Nadler gaveled to open the hearing, saying the facts before us are uh, undisputed, which is such a peculiar thing to say since this is a partisan effort and the Republicans dispute it all. Nadler said Trump's phone call with Ukraine president last July wasn't the first time the president sought to uh, sought a foreign power to influence American elections. We cannot wait for the election to address this present crisis. Republicans protested the proceedings as unfair to the president, the dredging up of unfounded allegations as part of an effort to undo the 2016 election and remove the president from office. You just don't like the guy, said Representative Dove Collins of Georgia, the top Republican on the panel. He called the proceedings a disgrace and a sham. Several Republicans immediately objected to the process, interjecting procedural questions and questioning rules. The committee heard from legal experts delving into the issue of whether Trump's actions stemming from the phone call with Ukraine's president rose to the constitutional level of bribery or high crimes and misdemeanors warranting impeachment. The report Court laid out evidence that the Democrats say shows Trump's efforts to seek foreign intervention uh, and then obstruct the House investigation. The president told reporters in London, where he was attending a NATO meeting, that he doubted many people would watch the live hearings because it's going to be boring. Uh, Trump uh, did a phone uh, phone in to the House GOP's morning meeting with the vice president to talk with House Major- Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. The California Republican said impeachment didn't come up. The unity has been very positive. New telephone call records released uh, with the report deepen Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani's known involvement in what House investigators call the scheme to use the president's office for personal political gain by enlisting a foreign power. Trump told reporters he really doesn't know why Giuliani was calling the White House's Office of Management and Budget, which was withholding $400 million in military aid to the ally confronting an aggressive Russia at its border. You have to ask him, the president said, sounds like something that's not so complicated, no big deal, end quote. Well, at the hearing, the three legal experts called by Democrats backed impeachment. Noah Feldman, a Harvard law professor, that he considered it clear that the president had conducted uh, his conduct, rather, met the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors. Pamela Carlin, a Stanford law professor and former Obama administration Justice Department official, said the president's actions constituted an especially serious abuse of power because it undermines democracy itself. Republican witness Jonathan Turley, who is not a Republican, a law professor at George Washington University, said the Democrats were bringing a slipshod impeachment case against the president, but he didn't excuse the president's behavior. It's not wrong because President Trump is right, according to Turley. A case for impeachment could be made, but it cannot be made on this record. The political risks are high for all parties as the House presses only the fourth presidential impeachment inquiry in U.S. history based on two months of investigation. 
Sparked by a still-anonymous government whistleblower complaint, the Intelligence Committee's Trump-Ukraine impeachment inquiry report relies heavily on testimony from current and uh, former U.S. officials who defied White House orders not to appear but had no firsthand accounts. Well, legal scholars sparred during the impeachment inquiry hearing about the president and whether or not he has committed impeachable offenses with witnesses uh, called by the Democrats insisting the president engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, While Republican witnesses, um, the Republican, there was only one to the three Democrat, argued the case was woefully inadequate and dangerous. The Judiciary Committee um, allegations center around the president's uh, phone call. Stanford Law Professor uh, Pamela Carlin and uh, and the other two all witnesses called by the Democrat committee did not hesitate to call the president's actions impeachable. At one point in a rather terse exchange, it was made clear that each of them was partisan in their um, financial contributions, their disdain for the president, uh, and attempt in an attempt to make the point that they were not objective in their interpretation. Again, this was the one hearing held today. It's not altogether clear what happens next in the Judiciary Committee, but it is their charge uh, to um, pin the specific articles of impeachment that will then, of course, uh, if In fact, they vote to impeach the president in the House. That will go to the Senate where the actual trial will be held. And the president and members of the um, Republican Party in the Senate have indicated they most certainly want a trial in which the witnesses they were not allowed to call in the House will be called upon in that hearing. Again, we'll continue to follow this developing story. Meanwhile, very little else has been done for the American people moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, We'll be talking about the mystery of the Magi later in the 5 o'clock hour and with Gary Hemingway about the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas. All of that, 5 o'clock hour. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by, you guessed it, Zero Res. Well, no one told Jack LaPlante that he could be in violation of the Clean Water Act for farming on his own land. Well, that's mostly because the federal law includes a clear exemption for normal farming activities. That normal is in quotes. But it's also because the government officials LaPlante consulted didn't view overturned dirt that has been uh, tilled and plowed as pollution. Well, in 2016, the Army Corps of Engineers, which administers the Clean Water Act with the Environmental Protection Agency, began legal action against LePant for plowing he did in 2011 to plant wheat on a ranch property he owned in Northern California. In March of 2012, LePant sold the property located in Tahama County, about four miles south of the city of Red Bluff. Before plowing his field to plant wheat, LePant conferred in person with the Farm Service Agency in California, which is part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. All of these government officials I spoke with, and they all, um, they've all been deposed. They never once suggested that I should go meet with the Army Corps of Engineers, LePant said in a phone interview. I asked them if it was okay to take this piece of land and grow wheat, and they all said it was just fine. Even today, you can go into these offices and they will not tell a farmer that he needs to go to the Army Corps to farm on his own land. It makes no sense. And the Department of Agriculture doesn't understand any of it. And we are taking we're talking about the same federal government. They're all part of the same 
level of government. LaPant recalls visiting four different government folks with expertise in soil conservation when he was researching the history of the farm. They all gave me the same answer, LaPant said. They told me, Jack, if you'd like to go ahead and plant it in the same way it's been planted in the past, go ahead. But if you want to go in and plant a permanent crop, then maybe you'll go back and study it. So I went ahead and planted 900 acres of wheat. Well, the legal complications for farmer LePant began after he sold the property uh, to Duarte Nursery, a family-owned nursery operation based in Tahama County, California, which then encountered similar problems with the Army Corps of Engineers. Well, Duarte Nursery entered into a settlement agreement with the federal government after suing the Army Corps of en- Engineers for denying due process. Well, Pacific Legal Foundation, a nonprofit public interest law firm based in Sacramento and in Washington, D.C., represented the nursery in the case and now represents LaPant. Well, a lawyer with Pacific Legal Foundation who specializes in property rights, says that the orchard planting operations of other, another company, Goose Pond Agriculture, may uh, be what led to the prosecution of LePant, who no longer owns the property. Well, Goose Pond Ag, as it's known, a Florida-based farmland management company, purchased a portion of the California property from Duarte Nursery in 2012. Six years later, in 2018, the company reached a settlement with the U.S. Justice Department, in which it agreed to pay $5.3 million in civil penalties for Clean Water Act violations, according to media reports. It's the orchard planting and the preparations for the orchard planting, which involves fairly substantial earthwork, that really got the Army's attention and got this whole enforcement action going, Francois, the attorney, says. What's um, odd about this is that they roped LaPant into it, who has... Uh, been an owner three purchases back, and we think the Army maybe initially thought LaPant was part of this plan to plant the orchard. Well, this month, Pacific Legal Foundation plans to submit a motion for summary judgment to the U.S. District Court of Eastern District of California that could resolve some or all of LaPant's case based on application of the law to the undisputed facts of the case. Well, there's a novel idea. Well, in the case, if it's not resolved, it could move to a jury trial sometime in 2020 property he hasn't owned now for uh, more than a decade. The Daily Signal um, sought comment from the Army Corps of Engineers and the Environmental Protection Agency. Neither would responded uh, to that request. What's particularly alarming to the previous owner of the property and other farmers familiar with the case is that in their view, the Corps saw fit to modify the Clean Water Act without congressional approval. So the bureaucracy made the change without congressional approval. There's pretty broad, clear statement in the Clean Water Act that you need uh, that you don't need a permit for normal farming activities. But they saw fit to just change that. Well, this would include normal ranching, farming, forestry activities. But the Army has added multiple conditions that you have to meet for these protections for such operations to continue. One of these conditions is that the property has to be tilled pretty regularly for this protection to continue. But there are many reasons why a farmer may suspend tilling. For example, cattle may have a higher price than wheat or corn, and so the land might be used for grazing for a period of time. Well, the Army Corps of Engineers has definitely added hurdles and obstacles to a pretty clear and simple statement of the Clean Water Act, which was approved by Congress, that you don't need a permit for formal farming activities or normal farming activities. Um, what they've done is to change the policy decision that Congress made. And that uh, raises some broader questions about whether or not bureaucracies have uh, overtaken congressionally approved 
policies and implementing those policies across the country. We'll continue to follow that case as it's a rather interesting development. Well, this year's education scandal saw parents shelling out megabucks to gain college admittance for their children. Federal prosecutors have charged more than 50 people with participating in a scheme to get their children into colleges by cheating on entrance exams, uh, bribing athletic coaches. They paid William Singer, a college prep professional, more than $25 million to bribe coaches and university administrators and to change test scores on college admittance exams such as the SAT and the ACT. As um, disheartening as this grossly dishonest behavior is, it's only the tiny tip of the fraud uh, iceberg in higher education. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 2016, only 37 percent of white high school graduates tested as college ready, but colleges admitted 70 percent of them. Roughly 17 percent of black high school graduates tested as college ready, but colleges admitted 58 percent of them. In 2018, Hetchinger report found more than uh, one, rather four in 10 college students end up in developmental math and English classes at an annual cost of approximately $7 billion. And many of them have a worse chance of eventually graduating than if they went straight into college level classes. Well, according to the nation's conference of state legislatures, when considering all first time undergraduates, studies have found anywhere from 28 to 40 percent of students enroll in at least one remedial course. When looking at only community college students. Several studies have found remediation uh, rates surpassing 50%. Only 25% of students who took the ACT in 2012 met the test's readiness uh, benchmarks in all four subjects, English, reading, math, and science. It's, um, it's clear that high schools confer diplomas that attest that a student can read, write, and do math at a 12th grade level when, in fact, most cannot. That means most high school diplomas represent fraudulent documents. But when high school graduates enter college, what happens? To get a hint, you can turn to an article that was written recently by Craig Klatfer, Good Grief, America's Great Inflation Culture, published in the fall of 2019 in the edition of the Academic Question. In 1940, only 15% of all grades awarded were A's. By 2018, the average grade point average at some of the nation's leading colleges was A minus the average. For example, the average GPA at Brown University, 3.75, Stanford, 3.68, Harvard, 3.63, Yale, 3.63, Columbia University, 3.6, University of California, Berkeley, 3.59. Well, the falling standards witnessed as uh, at our primary and secondary levels are becoming increasingly the case at tertiary levels. Academically adrift, limiting uh, limited learning on college campuses is a study that was conducted by professors Richard Aram and Josipa Roxa. They found that 45 percent of 2300 students at 24 colleges showed no significant improvement in critical thinking, complex reasoning, writing, and by the end of their sophomore years, there was no improvement marked at all. An article in um, News Forum for Lawyers titled Study Finds College Students Remarkably Incompetent cites a study done by the American Institutes for Research that revealed that over 75% of two-year college students and 50% 50 rather of four-year college students were incapable of completing everyday tasks. About 20% of four-year college students demonstrated only basic mathematical ability, while a steeper 30% of two-year college students couldn't progress past elementary arithmetic. NBC News reported that Fortune 500 companies spent about $3 billion annually to train employees in basic English. We're not talking about those who speak English as a second language. 
a list of some of the uh, the actual college courses that have been taught at U.S. colleges in recent years. What if Harry Potter is real? Lady Gaga and the sociology of fame. Philosophy and Star Trek. Learning from YouTube. How to watch television and, oh, look, a chicken. There are national implications to an undereducated group of young people. Oh, look, a chicken. What on earth could that possibly be about? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up at 5 o'clock, we'll talk with uh, F.R. Dwight Longenecker, The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Or perhaps more than three. That's coming up. We'll also talk with Gary Hemingway, music director for the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas Choir. That's going to be performing at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, December 12th, 13th, and 14th, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You can learn more at kpdq.com. Look for the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas banner when you get there. We were talking a few moments ago about fraud in higher education. Just wanted to make one more comment before moving on. The fact that uh, we've seen unscrupulous parents paid millions for special favors from college administrators to enroll their kids pales in comparison to the poor educational outcomes, not to mention the gross indoctrination of young people uh, by professors at universities. They may not have earned a spot to be a part of something to uh, something to consider. Well, the gene editing performed on Chinese twins to immunize them against HIV may have failed and created unintended mutations. Scientists are now saying after the original research uh, was made public for the first time, this gene editing experiment. Well, excerpts from the manuscript was released by the MIT Technology Review to show how Chinese biophysicist uh, ignored ethical and scientific norms in creating the twins, Lulu and Nana, whose birth in, 19, in uh, late 2018 sent shockwaves through the scientific world. He made expansive claims of a medical breakthrough that could control the HIV epidemic, but it wasn't clear whether it had even been successful in its intended purpose, immunizing the babies against the virus, because the team didn't, in fact, reproduce the gene mutation that confers this resistance. Well, a small percentage of people are born with immunity because of a mutation in the gene called CCR5, And it was this gene that uh, he had claimed to have targeted uh, using a powerful editing tool known as CRISPR, which was revolutionized um, or has really revolutionized the field since 2012. Well, a genome editing scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, told MIT Technology Review, and I quote, the claim they have reproduced the prevalent CCR5 variant is a blatant misrepresentation of the actual data and can only be described by one term, a deliberate falsehood. The study shows that the research team instead failed to reproduce the prevalent CCR5 variant, end quote. Well, while the team uh, targeted the right gene, they didn't replicate the uh, Delta 32 var- variation required, instead creating novel edits whose effects are not clear. Moreover, CRISPR remains an imperfect tool because it can lead to unwanted off-target edits, hmm, making its uh, use in humans hugely controversial. Well, the researcher here claimed to have searched for such effects of the early-stage embryos and found just one. However, it would be impossible to carry out a comprehensive search without inspecting each of the embryo cells and thus destroying it. Well, the claims have been made. The outcome, not altogether clear. Well, the parents lack access to any kind of fertility treatment might have motivated them to take part in the experiment, despite the huge risks to their children. A reproductive endocrinologist 
um, at MIT Technology Review says the father was HIV positive, which carries a significant social stigma in China and makes it almost impossible to have access to fertility treatment. Even though a well-established technique known as sperm washing prevents the infection being passed on to unborn children. But the authors also appear to have taken steps to make it hard to find the family, like leaving the names of the fertility doctors off the paper and including a false date of birth. He claimed November 2018, while multiple reports have indicated it was sometime in October. So this Chinese um, gene editing of of, um, this pair of twins may have created unintended mutations, but the scientific community has no access in order to determine if, in fact, that was the case. Well, in England, Manchester, on the 2nd of December, a crowd of some 200 people turned out for the world's first gender detransition conference on that Saturday afternoon. Now, detransition, the elephant in the room, was the title of the conference, Medical Ethics in the Age of Gender Identity, was held in Manchester, England, on the 30th of November, organized by an independent feminist collective called Make More Noise. The sold-out event included a panel of medical and psychological health experts, as well as young women who were detransitioning from attempts to make them men. Now, this may seem uh, rather um, interesting and peculiar and unusual, but it's only because individuals who have detransitioned, as they're using the word here, are not really allowed to be to exist. Their voices have been silenced. They're not welcome to be heard and so on. Well, the event also marked the official launch of the Detransition Advocacy Network, headed by Charlie Evans, 28, a woman who identified as a man for a decade. Evans decided to found the group to help the hundreds of young people, she says, have reached out to her after regretting Uh, their own experiments with hormonal treatments and surgeries. Well, the meeting was live tweeted by the Safe Schools Alliance UK, a lobby group that seeks to ensure the safeguarding of children in schools, which includes protecting girls' bodily privacy from males and all children from pressure to consider themselves transgender. Well, according to the Safe Schools Alliance UK, the meeting began with remarks by Evans, who stated, we are not motivated by hate. We are motivated by solidarity, sisterhood, and a strong sense of justice. She was followed by a female detransitioner named Max, who said her attempts to become male were about escaping lesbophobia and male harassment. That's a quote. Another detransitioner said that she had been a gender nonconformist child or tomboy until she began to feel social pressure to conform to femininity. Uh, She began hormone therapy and had a double mastectomy at 20. She came to realize, however, that these treatments were not evidence of self-acceptance. How how can I possibly be loving myself if I am sacrificing my general health in order to change my whole being, she asked. Well, the experts who spoke included a Dr. David Bell, a consultant psychiatrist in the adult department of London's uh, Travistock Center, where the Gender Identity Development Service for Children can be found. Bell said he doesn't believe that gender reassignment clinics do follow-up checks on their patients. He also remarked that the term puberty blockers for the powerful drugs given to children to delay the onset of puberty is misleading. He believes that the drugs probably have psychological consequences beyond delaying puberty. The lack of long-term evidence is the biggest issue in this field, but of course here in the U.S., You're not allowed to say that and still keep your job or your position. Dr. Anna Hutchinson, a clinical psychologist, revealed that almost 100% of children who take drugs to delay puberty go on to take cross-sex hormones. Hannah Ryan, an infectious disease researcher, noted that the effects of so-called puberty blockers and hormone replacement therapy are long-term. So long-term data collection following treatments is essential. 
but not currently available. Ryan also stated that medical professionals are under immense pressure to give distressed children that what uh, with gender dysphoria procedures to make them look like uh, members of the opposite sex. Bell noted that many medical professionals are worried about being called transphobic or accused of a hate crime. Hutchison medical, uh, said medical professionals are accused of transphobia just for asking for more research to be done at the expense of those who are the subjects of this, uh, these treatments. How can it be transphobic to call for better standards of care, she asked. I want better standards of care for dysphoric children. Well, fear of being labeled transphobic uh, seemed to resonate with the audience. According to the Safe School Alliance UK member live tweet the meeting, um, uh, tweeting the meeting, rather, a medical professional on the floor described being silenced. We are advised against using the term detransition or desister, he said, and noted that uh, this worries him a great deal as others. A psychologist in the audience expressed concern about the affirmation only model, which the Safe School Alliance UK member noted advocates immediate social transition for gender questioning children. Still, another audience member voiced concern that gender ideology sounds like old school sexism. And Dr. Bell replied by saying he had observed a caricaturing of gender stereotypes through transition. The issue of girls feeling that uh, girls are supposed to follow a narrow concept of femininity or transition into men appeared again when a panel of young women who are now detransitioning from their attempts to be men discussed their experiences. Young women called uh, one young woman, in fact, called Ellie, said she had lacked role models of masculine females. Another issue that arose was the young women's discomfort with their adolescent same sex attractions. Um, again, this being the first official conference, uh, certainly in the UK, but these kinds of um, conversations and meetings are taking place all over uh, the country. Uh, and those who are detransitioning are not um, welcome to tell their stories in very many forums, sadly. 59 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break for news and traffic. We'll talk about the mystery of the Magi when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, we are full on into the Christmas season. We're singing Christmas carols and enjoying fellowship with one another. Among the songs that are familiar, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Well, is that song, are those lyrics actually reflective of what the scriptures tell us and what we know, or at least think we know, about the Magi who came at the time of the birth of the Savior? Well, my next guest, um, well, he challenges what we think we know and urges us to look at what the scriptures actually say and what history can tell us. Everything you know or think you know about the famous Christmas story of the Magi is, well, wrong. In his astonishing book, Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men, uh, Dwight Longenecker pre author and award-winning blogger challenges the legend that three kings guided by a magical star joined adoring shepherds at the birthplace of Jesus. Now, let me just say that he's not suggesting that the scriptures are not inaccurate, but our understanding of them in the context in which all of this took place should be better understood. He pieces together evidence from the biblical studies, history, archaeology, and astronomy, and he uncovers where the wise men came from, why they came, while providing a new and fascinating view of the time and place in which Jesus Christ chose to enter the world. It really is a fascinating uh, book. Well, Dwight uh, Longenecker is a Catholic priest, award-winning blogger, freelance writer, a graduate of Oxford and Bob Jones University. He's written 16 books on different aspects
aspects of religion. He's a highly sought after speaker for scholarly and men's conference events and often leads parish missions, retreats and diocesan events. He and his wife have four children. He serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and joins us to talk about the Magi. We think we know, but probably don't fully understand. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be with you. You know, I'm going to be singing on Friday at an event, singing a Christmas song, and the song that I chose for that event is We Three Kings, and now I'm rethinking the (laughs) the whole thing because you have challenged us to consider, first of all, what the scriptures actually say, what they don't say, and to look at other sources to help us better understand who these wise men, if you will, Uh, who they were. What sparked this uh, interest for you in clarifying what what actually happened? Well, you know, I was asked to write an article about the origin of the wise men. And if you look into that, the usual um, research will say they were were, uh, from a a cast of um, sort of wizards and and shamans from from ancient Persia, uh, if they existed at all. But an awful lot of the Bible scholars uh, don't think the whole thing is a fairy tale. So I I sort of went back and said, well, I'm going to look at this in more detail. Uh, And what got me started was the prophecies in Isaiah, which say that um, the kings from Sheba and uh, Edom and Selah will come to the Messiah. So I said, where was Edom and Selah and Sheba? And it's in the Arabian Peninsula. So I thought, okay, let's see who was there during Jesus uh, the, at the time of Jesus' birth, and that opened up a whole new area of discovery, which was really fascinating. Mm. Well, it is fascinating because, uh, again, I think we think we know because that's how uh, the story has been handed down from generation to generation, despite the fact that the scriptures say some very specific things and leave some of the things we've embraced out. In fact, you make the point that some of what we have attached to that part of the story isn't biblical at all. It, it, its origins come from other sources altogether. Yes. Um, the, the Magi story, more than any other story in the, in the Bible, and, and uh, has been embroidered and added to uh, with lots of um, elaboration over, over 2,000 years of, of, of storytelling. Uh, and an awful lot of the uh, what we accept as the typical story that we all would tell at Christmas and see in the Christmas play of three wise men who came from Africa, Asia, and India who followed a, a magical star step by step on a long desert journey. None of that's actually in the Bible. Uh, and while I sort of take those legends apart, I do actually show that Matthew's simple telling of the tale is remarkably accurate to the to the um, po- politics and the geography and, and the um, context that we know at the time of Jesus' birth. So while I do take apart all the le- legends, and I explain where the legends came from, um, they, they originated, began to originate in, in the third century uh, in Syria and in Armenia uh, and in Persia, where the church was very influenced by Gnosticism. Uh, and by Zoroastrianism. And these influences came in, and extra-biblical writings began to circulate around about these uh, mystical wise men, uh, which were fantastical fairy tales. Uh, But these um, uh, extra-writings began to influence the tradition, which then came into um, uh, what we understand uh, in the European tradition, and it continued to develop right through the Middle Ages and beyond. Mm. Now, were the Magi initially seeking the Messiah uh, were they responding to messianic prophecies, or were they on a diplomatic mission uh, to the court of Herod the Great, or both, well, perhaps? We, we, yeah, we we can't really separate church and state um, back then. <laughs> the two were the two were really um, hand in hand. 
I, I proposed that they were actually on a, on a diplomatic mission from the court of Aratus IV in, in neighboring Nabatea to the court of Herod, and I explained why. But I also explained how these wise men would have been um, attuned to the Hebrew, the Jewish scriptures. They would have known the Old Testament. They would have known Isaiah. Uh, and the anticipation of a Messiah figure was actually, um, it's, it's amazing, it was widespread not just amongst the Jews, but all over the ancient world. Um, there are tracings of um, uh, uh, prophecies of a Messiah figure in Egypt, in Persia, in Greece, and in Roman literature. Uh, and so, uh, yes, they were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for a Messiah figure, but they were also on a diplomatic mission. Uh, and so it's not really either or. Now, you say Nebatia. Help us in the modern world to understand where that might be and, and who these people were. Well, the Nabataean civilization is basically, uh, they dominated the Arabian Peninsula. So when you think of Saudi Arabia and Jordan, that's the Nabataeans. Uh, and we don't know much about them because they didn't leave written records like the Romans and the Greeks and, and, and the Egyptians and, and the rest of the ancient civilizations. Uh, and basically, you think of them as a, a more, instead of a nation, as a, confeder- a trade confederation. Um, different tribes and different influences came together, and they dominated the trade routes from Yemen uh, across the Arabian Peninsula and, and uh, Palestine to the port of Gaza, and then running north and south from Egypt up to Syria, Armenia, and Persia. And they had their trade caravans with camels um, bringing goods from uh, luxury goods from uh, India and China uh, across to the rest of the Roman Empire, and then going back east, taking um, gauze, which comes from Gaza, uh, Damascus comes from Damascus, and other hmm. riches from, from the Roman Empire back across. They were traders. But th- this is the interesting thing as well. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh was their cash crop. The, the mines, the gold mines of, South, of Arabia were world famous for the purest and best gold in the world. Also, incense and myrrh is, grow, is taken from the bushes that only grow in the Arabian Peninsula and Northeast Africa, the territory they controlled. So therefore, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh also indicates uh, where they came from. Hmm, hmm. Now, we refer to the anomaly in the heavens as a star. Is that what they saw, or would, uh, astronomically speaking, is there a better explanation for what they viewed in the heavens that indicated something significant was happening on Earth. Yeah, yes. When you read Matthew carefully, he never says that they followed a magical star step by step across the desert journey. This came in in the Gnostic writings in the third century, um, in various different uh, myths and, and sort of fairy tales that, that people wrote about the Magi. Um, they say, Matthew says that the wise men saw his star rising. And the, there are several really good books about this written by astronomers and, and, and people who know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, and, but basically they say there was a planet, uh, not, they, they didn't distinguish between planets and stars back then. There was a planet that was rising uh, in the constellation associated with the Jews. Uh, it was the planet Jupiter, which is the royal planet. Uh, and as that star was rising, being astrologers, they concluded that there was a new king that was going to be born to the Jewish nation. Um, that's the short version. It's actually much more complicated than that. Uh, uh, and some of the, I think the best opinion says that it was a combination of uh, reading uh, astrological signs, but also there may very well have been uh, a, a startling comet, um, which also was another uh, sign in the heavens, uh, which helped to direct them. So uh, my opinion is that it's actually a combination of the two. Again, just uh, absolutely fascinating. Now, the song that I was going to sing tomorrow 
the opening line is, we three kings. We have <laughs> decided that there were three of them. Where does that um, numeric reference come from, and what's more likely to have been the case? Well, first of all, the, the kings, uh, they're first seen as being kings by uh, Tert- the first church fathers, Tertullian and Origen, writing in around I believe it, their dates are around the 2nd century. And they took that because of the prophecies in Isaiah, which said that the kings will come from Edom and Selah. And therefore, they concluded that these men were kings. Uh, in fact, I don't believe they were kings, but they certainly had a royal connection, in as much as I believe that they were diplomats coming from the court of uh, Aratus and coming to another king. So there was a royal connection, even though um, they were coming from a king, even though they may not have been kings themselves. And the number three, uh, very early on, um, the writers and the preachers and, and, and the theologians in the church began to say there must have been three of them because of the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. However, the early traditions differ. Uh, in some of the um, legends and stories about the wise men, there are four. In, in I think it's a Coptic manuscript, there are 12. Um, so, uh, and another uh, ancient uh, Christian Arthur's too. So, you know, the number is not stated in Matthew's gospel. So I guess I'll be singing Silent Night tomorrow. No, the thing is, you can still, and people say, because I also point out they probably didn't ride camels. Um, and, and people say, can I still have camels in my crib set? Of course. And you can sing We Three Kings of Orientar and all the rest of it. Um, but it's also good to know the historical foundation of, and, and of these legends. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a fascinating book that gives us a perspective on what happened at the time of uh, the birth of Christ. My guest is Father Dwight Longenecker. His book is titled The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men or Group of Guys from Somewhere. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a fascinating conversation with Father Dwight Longenecker. He's the author of The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men, or as you know, more possibly from places other than where we thought they came from. Now, um, let me ask you um, why the story of the Magi is important to the narrative of Jesus' birth. Now, we know that if it's in Scripture, it's meaningful. So help us better understand why that's why mention is made of this visitation. And I think the, the other question is, when did it actually happen? There's all kinds of uh, ideas as to when they would have arrived. You know, traditionally, they're on the they're in the nativity scene with Jesus, Mary and the infant. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, there are a couple of questions there. I, first of all, again, uh, we, if we look simply at Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew says that they came to the house where the young child was, and they found the young child with Mary, his mother. And the word young child is, is best translated toddler. So um, they're not in a stable at this point, they're in a house, uh, and, the, and Jesus is, the, is, a, is a toddler. So and, and then Herod, remember, said, tell us when the star appeared. And then he asks for all of the, the babies two years old and younger to be killed. Therefore, we put those facts together and say, perhaps the, the wise men came to pay their homage to the Christ child um, when Jesus was um, young, younger than two years old. Um, and so uh, most uh, everyone just reading the text would make that conclusion. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's nice to 
have them there with the shepherds on Christmas Eve, but they, they came a couple of years later um, and, and paid their homage to, to the Christ child. Uh, the other question that you asked, um, I forget what it was. Oh, just <laughs> generally, <laughs> generally why this uh, is important to the narrative of uh, oh, the birth yeah. of Jesus. I mean, obviously, if it's mentioned, it happened, but we, we want to better understand why was that included in the story that that's so familiar to many of us. Right. We, well, we, that's when we look at Matthew's audience and we look at Matthew's um, provenance. In other words, where was he writing from? Matthew is the first of the Gospels to be written, I believe, although scholars debate that. Um, and But anyway, he is writing from to a Jewish audience, uh, probably in Judea, around the area of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and so forth. So he's writing from this, in the area to the same people who were there. Now, <clears throat> we know from the early church that there was a big controversy, and that amongst the Jewish Christians uh, in, in the early days, and that is, are the Gentiles allowed to, 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 to receive the gospel? The Jews said that, that, they're, that the Gentiles are dogs, and so um, there was a, a strong contingent, a strong party who said, no, Jesus is here, he's the Savior of the Jews, he's not for the Gentiles. And of course we know from the book of the Acts of the Apostles um, that Peter and, and the Apostles, uh, Peter had a dream and, and someone came to see him and they debated back and forth. Uh, and so this was a big debate uh, in uh, the, just at the time when Matthew was writing his gospel. Therefore, we know which side Matthew was on. Matthew was on the side that the gospel was actually for all people, and that's one of the key reasons why he um, tells us the, the Magi story. He says, look, these, these pagans, these men uh, who were not Jews, uh, came and were drawn by the Lord uh, to worship uh, his son, Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God, uh, at his birth, and right from the very beginning, therefore, the Lord had planned uh, for them to come. He quotes some of the uh, um, <clears throat> prophecies from Isaiah, uh, which also show that um, all nations will come, and, and the house of the Lord, the, the temple will be a house of prayer for all nations, and that all the nations will come to worship. So uh, that's the reason why Matthew includes it. He wants to make the point that the gospel is for the non-Jews. Ah, ah. Well, let's let's talk about historical evidence that would prove the existence of this group of of uh, travelers. Uh, one could argue it's in the scriptures, therefore it, it happened and it must be true, but we'd be accused of circular reasoning. Is there any extra biblical um, uh, historical evidence that uh, that supports the story in, in the scriptures? Well, uh, the, the, we have not yet found any inscriptions uh, in uh, Petra, by the way. The famous city of Petra was the capital of the Nabataean um, civilization. Uh, we have not found any inscriptions uh, there which say this was the home of the three wise men who went to see Jesus, baby Jesus. <laughs> but what I did in my book was I, I gathered together um, evidence about uh, the, the Magi and their history right back through five centuries uh, in Persia and around the rest of the ancient world. I gathered together the history of the Nabataeans and explained uh, what their motivations were and what, what their um, life was like. I looked at the politics of the time when Jesus was born uh, and drew it all together to build up um, bit by bit with lots of uh, little pieces of evidence. One of the most intriguing ones uh, is uh, were the Nabataean, um, the, the religious people, the, the wise men in Nabataea, were they stargazers? Uh, and in the 1930s, in a temple uh, in Jordan, in Nabataean territory, from the time of Christ, from the first century, uh, they discovered uh, a stone zodiac, uh, which is proof, therefore, that the Nabataeans were stargazers. Furthermore, um, we very recently, uh, an archaeoastronomer named uh, Juan Antonio Belmonte, who works in Spain, uh, determined that the hilltop temples of the Nabataeans were actually built uh, according to the alignment of the stars and the alignment of the planets. 
So we know that they were a, a stargazing um, peoples. We know that, that was part of their religion, uh, and we know they had deep interest in the, the doings of the Hebrew people because they were they were cousins uh, in a way. The tribes of Arabia were cousins to the Jews, uh, and so all of these pieces to get to, uh, of evidence together. Um, it's kind of like if we're looking for the wise men, who are the best, uh, you know, suspects, mm-hmm. and, and 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 they're the ones who come up. Oh, again, just fascinating. One of the things you do in the process of helping to help us to better understand who the Magi may have been, um, you also refute arguments against the the Christmas story. Those who would suggest that yes, it's a it's a warm and fuzzy story, but it really is not true. And particularly the Magi, they were not a part of that story. And you uh, really uh, focus on those who whose exegesis would dismiss elements of Scripture. Yes, I, I was. I, I, I mean, I did have an agenda. I wasn't making things up, but I did want to find out uh, the historical basis for the Magi story, and was not very patient, really, with the uh, academics and the scholars who simply say, "Oh, yes, it's a fairy tale. Everybody knows it's a fairy tale." In fact, somebody said to me, "Father, why do you think after two thousand years you've discovered the answer?" And I said, "Well, part of the reason is." that nobody else bothered to look it up because they thought it was a fairy tale. Uh, I mean, if, if you think, for instance, um, Johnny Appleseed, let's say, uh, had no historical existence, was a fairy tale person, you would never bother to do any research to find him. Uh, and so I thought, well, let's have a look anyway. And what I found was uh, just really exciting. Well, it, it, uh, this is a great book, and I thoroughly enjoy the, the notion of um, better understanding that element of Scripture and th- be also sort of putting a check on what I've added to what the Scripture actually says. You know, I think we need yes. to be uh, careful about what it says as opposed to what our familiar um, legends um, add to it. Um, I think your listeners can learn a great deal about the Christmas story and um, just the importance of all of those details. Did the Magi come to worship? Um, do you think, uh, obviously there's no evidence to support this, but did they come to worship the Messiah? Did they come out of curiosity? Was this just one culture acknowledging uh, the value of elements from another? What do you think their motive well, was in coming? I'd like to get to that in a minute, but first I would like to remind your listeners that this book is also um an apologetics book. You see, a lot of non-believers will say to Christians, oh, you believe a lot of legends and fairy tales and make-believe stuff. And in fact, when it comes to the Magi story, they're right. <laughs> a lot of what we tell, the story we tell at Christmas is made up of these extra things that are extra-biblical. Um, and therefore, uh, it's our duty to pare those things away and look at the facts and look at the evidence and look at um, what really did happen. So that's, it was partially an apologetics effort to, to put this together. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question, I, I believe that the, the wise men were, um, in their own culture, uh, religious seekers. I think they were looking for the Messiah. I believe that they knew the, the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, and I, I put in my book why I believe they, mm-hmm. they knew the prophecies of Isaiah. They also knew and understood and had very ancient links um, with the Jewish religion. Uh, the Arabian tribes all claimed descent from Abraham like the Jews did. And there's very fascinating details about how their religion was similar to the Jews. Furthermore, they were the next-door neighbors to the Jews. They would have been um, very intrigued by the prophecies uh, of, the, of the coming king of, king of Israel, the son of David, the Lamb of God, uh, the Messiah. So I think they were on a religious and spiritual search, uh, but it was also 
uh, as it happened, uh, had, a, had a political dimension to yeah, it. Yeah, a geopolitical interest. Mm-hmm. What do you think yeah. happened to these seekers once they discovered the Messiah, brought the gifts um, to him? What became of them, do you think? Well, that's where I get into <laughs> <laughs> That's where I get into a lot of, I think, really fascinating speculation. Um, it, my speculation is that if Herod was was um, watching out for them because he was mad at them, he would also have told their boss, the king of Nabatea. Therefore, when it says they went back to their country by a different way, Matthew says they went back by a different way, I think they didn't go home at all to their home city. I think they went instead to Damascus, which was in the northern part of their territory. But at that time, was controlled by the Romans, not controlled by the king of uh, the Nabataeans. Therefore, uh, they would have been in their own country, but they would have been safe under the under the um, rule of the Romans uh, in the city of Damascus. Now, I think Damascus, because you might remember where um, the Acts of the Apostles connects 30 or 40 years later after Jesus' death and resurrection, St. Paul goes to persecute the Christians who are already in Damascus. Um, very early on, Damascus is one of the centers of the church, and he says they're already there. And there are a few intriguing little hints in the research um, that the, Mag- the Magi were in Damascus, uh, and or there were wise men in Damascus, uh, and that there was a very early Christian community there. So I speculate about that, and I say, did um, St. Paul actually learn his theology uh, from this very early Christian community, which perhaps was founded by the, by the Magi. Um, is there evidence for that? Well, I didn't, I didn't dig much further. <laughs> I'll let somebody else do that. <laughs> but it's, a, it's an in, informed speculation that's uh, worth pondering. Thank you so much for joining us. I so appreciate the book, The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Father Longenecker, thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas. And thanks for having me on the show. You have a great time. And you go ahead and sing three, uh, We Three Kings. <laughs> okay, I'll okay. do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, right, Father uh, Dwight and Longenecker, The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Christmas season is upon us, and what better way to celebrate the joy of the season than to be at the 21st Gospel Christmas. You can clap your hands, tap your feet, along with the region's premier gospel singers, the Oregon Symphony, at this annual concert that has become a favorite in our region. Now, this is the 21st year of the Gospel Christmas. It's a collaboration of the Northwest Community Gospel Choir and the Oregon Symphony. It is a multicultural choir of about 100 voices. About 33 churches are represented in organizations from the Portland metro area. Last year, their 20th anniversary, they produced their first recording on the 20th anniversary. And Gary Hemingway, <clears throat> excuse me, who is the music director, joins us now uh, to talk about this uh, phenomenal performance. Now, Gary has uh, served as the music director for some 19 years. I happen to uh, know Gary and have known him for many years. He is a composer and arranger, vocal, choral, instrumental, the, the best piano player you've ever heard. He's traveled all throughout the world. He serves as the artistic director for the Walla Walla Choral Society, directs worship at a Walla Walla church. Um, he's a studio music Musician. He instructs uh, jazz piano at Whitman College in Walla Walla. And there's so much more I could say about this talented uh, musician and friend. But we're here to talk about the uh, Symphony's Gospel Christmas. And I'm so thrilled that that is coming up soon. Gary Hemingway, thanks for joining us. Hey, George. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. And it's always such a pleasure to hear your voice. Well, it's always a great pleasure to get to talk with you. We don't get to see one another as much as we used to, but... 
but this is always nice. This is better than nothing, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, Gary, this is, as I mentioned, the 21st anniversary of Gospel Christmas. I can hardly believe it's been going on that long. Can you tell us a little bit about this year's presentation? Well, it does seem surreal. Um, uh, this year, well, we uh, we really felt like after 20 years that we needed to, to um, step back just a little bit and come at it with a fresh perspective. And so there's a lot of different changes that have taken place um, with the choir and with our personnel. And um, and so um, the, the music this year is reflecting uh, some of that attitude. And there are some songs that we've been wanting to do, honestly, since... Um, well, Dr. Floyd, um, Charles Floyd is our uh, conductor, and there's music that he's been wanting to do from the beginning. He shared that with me in, in the, um, the first year that I was a part of it, and so we decided we'd tackle it this year. And so um, we're going to do some really very challenging um, music this year. Uh, we, have, we have more new soloists this year than we have ever had in um, the history of my participation in the project, and... Um, it should be a, a, a really great season. Oh, absolutely. It always is. And this really is one of the premier events for the city of Portland. I hear people talk about it all year round. And it's coming up uh, with the opening night, Friday, December 13th, uh, continuing on Saturday and Sunday uh, evening. And I'll give the times more specifically in, in just a moment. Uh, but this is really a, a very interesting collaboration. Gospel music, um Married to uh, the Oregon Symphony, how does that collaboration work? <laughs> That's a good question. How does that work? <laughs> well, it, you know, I, I, I've had that question posed to me so many different times, and uh, I, I've always answered with, you know, it's a it's a friendly collision. Yeah. Um, it, you know, when we when we first began, it, there were two distinct musical entities from two distinct musical worlds. And, uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't there for those first two years. Terry Davis was the, the choral director then. And, uh, uh, but I, I know that when I came on in their third season, that you could still tell that there was a kind of a tentative nature to mm-hmm. the relationship between the choir and the symphony. Um, Charles, of course, uh, Charles Floyd, of course, is so comfortable in both those worlds. Um, that he he became in some respects kind of the glue, you know. He 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 caused this cohesion really to to take place um, because I don't I you know I don't get to work with the the orchestra um, typically every every once in a while I'll conduct but um, usually he's the one that's on the podium with both groups on stage and so. Um, uh, you know, it, it was a little tentative for a while, but now, um, now there's such a camaraderie and a genuine appreciation and respect for one another. Um, the last few years, uh, members of the the orchestra have asked to sing with us on a song. Huh. So several of the orchestra members will go up into the into the choir loft and sing on one of the uh, one of the pieces that the orchestra does not play on and it's always that's always such a celebration the choir just loves it when that happens yeah so it, it's it's really become a very special um I would even say familial gathering. You know, I've heard from members of the uh, the Oregon Symphony 
how much they love this event. It gives them an opportunity to express themselves in ways that perhaps uh, some of the other music they perform does not. And you're right, that camaraderie with the choir members and vice versa is really something special. This is no timid, watered-down performance. This is a gospel Christmas, and both both entities come together to present something that is unlike anything you've ever heard, unless you've been uh, to Gospel Christmas. Now, I need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment to tell you more details about this uh, amazing phenomenon that's coming to the Arlington. Schnitzer Concert Hall, Friday, December 13th at 7.30, Saturday the 14th, also at 7.30, and then Sunday evening at 4 o'clock p.m., again at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. For more details, you can go to kpdq.com, look for the Gospel Christmas banner. You can find out about the tickets, the times, and all of that. Let me encourage you to add this to your Christmas traditions, because there is nothing like it in the metro area. We'll continue my conversation with uh, Gary Hemingway in just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We are anticipating the 21st anniversary of the Gospel Christmas coming to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall December 13th through the 15th. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evening. You can go to kpdq.com for all the important details and to purchase your tickets. But before you do that, I want to give you an opportunity to win a pair of tickets. Uh, We're talking about um, orchestra-level tickets to the Oregon Symphony's Gospel Christmas. We want to give that away to caller number two, and the number to call, 800-845-2162, And we're talking with Gary Hemingway. He's the music director for the Gospel Christmas. He is one of the most talented musicians in this area. I'm talking about the Pacific Northwest. I'd extend it beyond that, but uh, I'll just leave it at that for now. Uh, We're just delighted um, that he is the music director and is talking with us about uh, the Northwest Community Gospel uh, Choir that is a part of Gospel Christmas. Where do the singers and musicians come from, and how do you select your soloists? <laughs> well, um, this year, everybody, I'm trying to think if we have anybody outside of Portland. I don't think so. I think everybody uh, this year is from the Portland area. In times past, we've had some people that come down from uh, Seattle and, uh, you know, Eugene and and that sort of thing. But I think everybody this year is from the greater metropolitan area. Um, the, our, we have a rhythm section that um, uh, Jerry Harris is in Salt Lake City. He flies in. He'll fly in this next Monday. Um, Rod Nightingale, who um, they all used to live in Portland, but mm-hmm. other places. Rod Nightingale is our drummer. He comes in from Houston. And uh, and then Chris Turner is our pianist, and he's uh he's back in the Portland area now, and so um uh, that's where they're all from. And then uh, the soloists, well, <laughs> the the soloists, uh, we actually have an audition process. It is uh it takes quite a while to to figure this out. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, the, the thing about the thing about a, an audition, and I, I encourage everybody in the choir and really every musician that I work with, you, you know, when you have the opportunity to audition, audition, always audition, because there's a, you, you'll learn so much from the process. Um, uh, and uh, not to mention that every day the voice changes. And that's something that we're always we're, we're always working towards as, you know, as musicians is to become consistent with our vocal abilities and um, and so, and you never know, you never know what uh, a vocalist is going to bring um, in in that audition. So, you know, I'm really outlining some of the things that are more challenging about actually running the audition. 
Um, but we're we're trying to keep in mind we're trying to keep in mind the spirit of the song and who actually is best connecting with the song at that time because we're we're replete we we have so many people yes. that, could, that that could step up to the microphone and the audience would be just wowed you know they would yeah. love what they did but we're looking for something special that really takes place. Somehow, you know, they open their mouths and they connect with the music and they do something that is just so unique and in the moment. Um, I think we're, you know, I also have to keep in mind that um, even though there are, there are people that um, may be able to audition really well, you know, how well will they do in front of, mm-hmm. you know, 8,500 people over the course of a weekend? Um, uh, how, you know, how well, what is their stage presence like when they walk up to the microphone? Are they nervous? Uh, are they smiling? Um, when they walk up to the microphone, are they asking for help? You know, because uh, <laughs> come Friday night, I'm not going to be there to help them. <laughs> you're on your own, man. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're on your own. Um, you know, so, you know, you take into all, you take all those things into account. And you also, I also have to take into account that there are those vocalists that the audience absolutely adores. Mm-hmm. They want to hear them year to year. You know, and so it, it doesn't mean that I always put them up there, uh, but um, I, I do keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, I tell you, the Portland and, metro uh, area has an inordinate number of really gifted musicians and singers. And I, I don't envy you the task of trying to narrow down who for this particular year is going to be featured because there's just a lot here in the Portland area. And for people who have never heard a gospel choir uh, composed of uh, locals, this is an opportunity you're not going to want to miss. I was speaking with one of my coworkers earlier today, Crystal Thornton, who's one of the personalities on our sister station, The Fish. She went to the Gospel Christmas last year for the first time, and she was blown away. She then went to San Francisco thinking, now this is really going to be, Vanessa Williams was the chief soloist and so on. And she said, you know, what happened here in Portland just blew San Francisco out of the water. Because we just have such a, a depth of, of talent here, excellent direction, great musicians. And this is just something you're not going to want to miss. It's not like anything else that's going on this Christmas season here in the Portland area. Would you agree? Well, you know, I, you know, I, I this, this actually, I get really excited about this. The, um, I, I, I'm regularly telling people uh, in the choir and outside the choir that there is, I know of nothing else like this particular mm-hmm. show in the world. Now, and I don't think that's hyperbole. Um, I know, I know that, that for a while there was a show like this in Atlanta. They did one night. I know that there is a show that Boston Pops still do that's kind of like this, but it's only they only do four or five gospel songs. They do that annually, and that's been going on for quite a while. I know that there are other places that have been doing gospel Christmas concerts that have some similarity to this, but there's no other show like this that I'm aware of where you have a Grammy-nominated orchestra, you have a 100-voice gospel choir, and I'm not talking about Oak Ridge voice gospel, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You know, that is, that has, we've been doing this, we do it for three nights, we've been doing it for 21 years, and we sell out all three houses. Yeah. And let me just uh, add to that a, a music nothing, director. There's nothing else like it. That's, in, that's incredible as well. There really is nothing else like it. Now, let me encourage our listeners. You need to get your tickets now because, as you've mentioned, for these three performances, everybody wants to go. And if you want to be among them, you need to go to kpdq.com. You'll find all the important details. The dates, once again, Friday, 
Saturday, Sunday, December 13th, 14th, 15th at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. And uh, get your tickets and plan on being there. Now, we're going to give away another pair of tickets on Thursday and again on Friday. So you'll have a couple of opportunities. But let me encourage you not to wait because, again, this is a very popular uh, concert. Um, Let's see. What else do we need to tell our folks who um, may not well, I, be familiar with Gospel would, Christmas. Yeah, I would add on to that. I, I was just told, actually, a couple of weeks ago that this year is, is selling faster than previous years. So the, the tickets are selling quite... It's a, it's a nice brisk. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. People don't buy tickets to a concert uh, that isn't well done. This is done with you know, excellence. that's true, George. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary, I'm just delighted that... Uh, I've, I've bought tickets to concerts that aren't well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll have to grant you that. This, however, is well done. <laughs> Gary, such a pleasure to talk so. with you. Thanks so much for your work with the Gospel Christmas, and we look forward to another great season. Thanks. It's great to hear your voice, George. Still Dan, I. I will do that. Bye-bye. Again, Gary Hemingway, Music Director of the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas. Go to kpdq.com to get your tickets and find out more. want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.